What you are about to listen to could be dangerous for anyone wishing to live a normal, safe life at the end of a cheesy cul-de-sac. Back to Jerusalem podcasts are not made in sterile recording studios with professional DD DJs, but instead behind enemy lines with horrible acoustics, bad internet connections, and suspicious-looking coffee. Listening to Back to Jerusalem podcast could include unwanted side effects like selling your house, leaving your boring job, and uncontrollable desires to speak strange foreign languages. So buckle up, strap in, and hold on, because this is Fast Train, baby, to all those places your mother warned you about. And now, for your host, the man known for having a radio face, Eugene Bach, coming to you live on delay in 5, 4, 3, 2... Hello and welcome back to another Back to Jerusalem podcast. I'm your host for this half hour, Eugene Bach, and I'm coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of America this time where I'm sitting together with a uh, a guy that I've known uh, for uh, quite a long time, but never personally. I've only known him through his writings. Um, his name is Don Richardson. He's been somebody that I've admired just because of one book specifically that uh, talked to me when I was uh, an early um, missionary working in China. Uh, it's a book that's called Eternity in Their Hearts. Um, Don Richardson, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be with you, Eugene. And now, uh, of course, Eternity in Their Hearts is what brought me here to your house. Uh, so that we could go over some of the things that uh, directly relate to what's happening in China today with the idea of God's fingerprint being on different cultures. However, I've learned during this time with you that there are other books that you've also written, one specifically that I wanted to talk to you about today. Uh, You've written a book about Islam, right? Yes, it's entitled Secrets of the Quran. And uh, when did that come out? 2003. After the 9-11 catastrophe, I realized I had to study Islam in depth. I'd already written three books about how to reach other kinds of cultures around the world, but now Islam was looming as the greatest challenge to the Church of Jesus Christ. And so I wanted to find out what did Muhammad really teach, And is it possible I could find something in the Quran or in the traditions that follow the Quran that Christians could use as eye-openers, as a means to gain access to the Muslim heart and mind and lead them to faith in Jesus? Well, as I began to study the Quran, I came across some very major problems. To give you a little background, when Muhammad lived in his hometown, Mecca, in Arabia, and began proclaiming himself as a prophet sent to the Arabs by the same God who had sent various prophets to the Jews and Jesus to the Christians. He met with resistance from many idol worshippers there in Mecca, and they kept saying to him, that's what you claim about yourself. But we need a second opinion. If you want us to believe that the God who sent various prophets to Jews and Jesus to the Christians has sent you to us, then you need to go up to the city of Medina where there are Jews and maybe some Christians and make that presentation to them 
because they will know if you're the kind of prophet their God would send to people like us. And if they affirm what you're saying, then that will give you more credibility among us. So with the passage of time, Muhammad felt an increasing desire to go to Medina and proclaim himself to the Jews and hope to win an intellectual affirmation from them, which would give him more success with the pagan Arabs in establishing Islam. Well, finally he did go from his hometown Mecca up to Medina, <clears throat> accompanied by his followers who were increasingly persecuted. On the way from Mecca to Medina, he said to his followers, when we arrive in the city of Medina, when I give the word, we're going to prostrate ourselves flat on the ground three times a day and pray toward Jerusalem, the Jewish holy city. This was something he planned to impress the Jews and win their favor so that they would acknowledge him as a prophet. So indeed, they did arrive in Medina and prayed three times a day, lying prostrate in the ground toward Jerusalem. And the Jews had heard reports about someone down in Mecca who was proclaiming himself as a prophet sent by the God that the Jews worship. So they were curious to check him out. And they saw him and his followers praying three times a day toward Jerusalem. And then they met with Muhammad and he made his appeal to them as follows. Would you please tell all these pagan Arabs that the same God who sent Moses and David and other prophets to you Jews and Jesus to the Christians is sending me to the Arabs? Which part of that did Muhammad not know the Jews would not accept? Jesus. Jesus to the Christians. He was unaware that the Jews rejected Jesus. And so they said, don't talk to us about Jesus. We crucified him. He'd never heard of the crucifixion because there were no Jews in Mecca, his home, and no Christians. No Jews or Christians in Mecca, so he was completely uninformed. He, he didn't know how much and this is during the time when he's trying to appease the Christians and the Jews, right? Well, he thought that when he did make this proclamation of monotheism, mm -hmm. rejecting idolatry and worshiping one God, he thought Jews and Christians would say, wonderful, go for it. He thought they would acknowledge him as a prophet. He did not know that to be called a prophet called for a, a lot more qualifications than just what you preach. And so, because there's a there's a lot of people that are a bit confused with um, certain surahs um, that preach um, peace, mm -hmm. and then certain surahs that preach jihad. And what I think a lot of listeners or people might not know is that actually the Quran, which you've read, yeah. um, is not written in chronological order. It's not in chronological order, but there is a way of sorting out the six. There's only six six peace verses. They were all Muslims say they were all recited by Muhammad to be written down while he was still in Mecca. Because while he was still there with no contact with Jews and Christians, he naively thought Jews and Christians would gladly acknowledge him as a prophet. It wasn't until he got to Medina and encountered resistance from the Jews. And of course, the resistance was mainly because he was acknowledging Jesus as a prophet, and the Jews didn't like that. So the Jews in Medina thought he must be some kind of Christian trying to put one over on us. So they said, don't talk to us about Jesus. We crucified him. Now, Muhammad was embarrassed in the midst of his followers 
for the Jews to say that because he'd been telling his followers, Allah is sending the angel Gabriel to me to inform me of things that we all need to know. So obviously, suddenly everybody realizes, how come the angel Gabriel didn't tell you that the Jews do not acknowledge Jesus? So he had to say something to save face, Eugene, and guess what he came up with? He retorted to the Jews saying, you thought you crucified Jesus, it was made so to appear to you. So on the spot he denied the crucifixion of our Lord. Said it was, uh, God confused you Jews so that you crucified someone else who, who resembled Jesus. It was made so to appear to you, it was mistaken identity. Because there was no way God was going to allow Jesus, the son of Mary, sinless and pure, to be crucified. So a new doctrine got added to the Islamic doctrinal uh, regimen on the spot because the prophet needed to save face. And it got written down in the Quran. Say, not crucified. It was made so to appear to you. Now the denial of the crucifixion has been a problem ever since. Because all the redemptive analogies that I've written about in my books, especially in Eternity in the Hearts, which gives 28 case histories of them. And a redemptive analogy. Could you just explain what that is? Something in a human culture that God has placed there, sovereignly caused to be a component of that culture, so that when a faithful messenger brings the gospel, the gospel will make special sense to the listeners in that culture because of that thing that is already there, which anticipates the gospel. It's like a foreshadowing of the redemptive message. It's the equivalent of Jesus being proclaimed as the Lamb of God to the Jews. He can be proclaimed as the peace child to a Sawi tribesman or the giver of real new birth to an Asmat tribesman, etc. And so, uh, when you look for a redemptive analogy in Islam, you're looking for something that can be the focus of an atonement between mankind and God. But if Jesus didn't die, if there was no crucifixion, there's no atoning death, and so there is nothing, and so there's no redemptive analogy in the, in Islam. And this is what makes Islam more resistant to our Christian approach than we find among animists and other people in other parts of the world. However, in my research, I did find something that serves as a redemptive analogy, even though technically it shouldn't work because it denies the crucifixion, which is the basis of it all. Muhammad told the story in the Quran of Allah commanding Abraham to take both his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and go to a certain place. So Abraham set on a journey with his two sons. Then in the Quran, Muhammad narrates that Allah commanded Abraham to place one of his sons on an altar in preparation to sacrifice him. The Quran doesn't say which son it was. Now, we know from the Bible it was Isaac. And the the, um, the Arabs put a lot more emphasis on Ishmael. Ishmael, their ancestor. But the Quran doesn't specify which son it was. So Abraham placed his son, whichever one it was, on the altar in readiness to sacrifice him as Allah might require. But Allah intervened at the last moment and said, Do not slay the boy. I have found a ransom for his soul. And Allah provided a 
a, an animal, a sheep, to take the place of Isaac, of, of the Abraham's son. And so, what many missionaries have used in reaching out to Muslims, and it's had great success, and which Muslim background believers, Muslim who, who had been Christians for a long period of time, they also do use this. And so, missionaries entering the uh, difficult Muslim nations in Asia on their way back to Jerusalem, please keep this in mind. Refer to the reference in the Quran where Allah provided a sheep to take Abraham's son's place without arguing about which son it was and say, just as Allah provided that sheep to take Abraham's son's place on that altar, God sent Jesus to die on the cross in your place to atone for your sin that you might be reconciled from God, to God. Now, if you're talking to a Muslim who is well-educated in the Quran, he will reject that. He'll say, no, you can't make that connection because Jesus wasn't crucified. But here's the important thing to remember. Probably no more than half of 1% or 1% at the most of Muslims know that the Quran denies the crucifixion of Jesus. They just don't know that. And so... But they're reading the same Quran as you read, right? But most Muslims do not read it. And why is that? Well, the Quran, as I reveal and verify in my book called Secrets of the Quran, is extremely repetitious. For example, Muhammad tells the story of Abraham going out of uh, Ur of the Chaldees on the way to the Promised Land. He tells that story 27 times in the first few dozen chapters of the Quran. I, you know, when I read the Quran, I've read the Quran several times. I was doing studies before the 2011 or the 2001 uh, attack on 911. Mm -hmm. But... Um, when I was reading the Quran, you know how you're reading a book yeah. and you're like, oh, I've, I, I must have read this. I must have kept my, my spacing at a different right. place. I kept coming into those places where I was like, wait a minute, didn't I just read that? And it was because yeah. there was this repetition like you're saying. There are dozens of stories that are told at least six times in the Quran and some are told two dozen times or even more. It tells the story of Noah and the flood. I think it's 27 times in the first 80-something chapters. So what effect does all that repetition have upon the human brain? The brain starts complaining, what have I done to you that you're punishing me with this repetitious, boring thing? And, it, and it, it, it's disconnected, and it, it isn't a consistent story like reading through the Gospel of John. Yeah, there, there's, there's an incoherence. Yes. As you're reading through, you're like, wait a minute, did they finish that thought? <laughs> I, I don't even see where that was going, and all of a sudden it stopped. So there were, there were times where I had to go back and reread things yes. to see, did I miss something? So here's what happened, and it was happening to me when I began to read it. You start reading, because of the boredom, the repetition, boredom gives way to browsing, Keep going, browsing gives way to skimming. Mm. And as a result, uh, you're missing things. And I realized when I did my intensive study in the Quran, uh, I was starting to browse and skim, and I said, wait a minute, I can't do this. So I prayed to God and said, please show me, how can I stay focused on every verse no matter how bored I feel? And God gave me the answer. Count the repetitions. That'll keep you motivated <laughs> to read another verse, another verse, another chapter, another chapter, just to see how many repetitions of this, that, and the other thing you can find. 
and I've documented the repetitions in my book. I think I'm the first researcher ever to document repetitions. And it's important because it explains, here's what happens with Muslims. Muslims are constantly warned in the Quran, Allah knows what's in your th- in your heart. He knows what you're thinking. So if a Muslim is reading the Quran, expecting to feel enthr- enthralled by it, lo and behold, he's bored by it. And he says, Allah can see my boredom. And if I keep going, I'll get more and more bored, and I'll be punished in hell for being bored by what was supposed to be honored as holy. So they may stop reading so as not to be punished for being bored by what they're reading. So they may get just two or three or four chapters and stop as a self-defense mechanism because they don't want to be under the wrath of Allah for having been bored by the Quran. Mm. And so... uh, most Muslims thus thank God they don't know. Now, if you ask a Muslim, have you read the Quran, the most common answer you'll get is, no, I haven't read it, but we all know what's in it. So and they, the they, fact is, because a lot of people, when they think of Muslims, they often think of people that are in the Middle East. They, they think of Arabs. Mm-hmm. But the, the truth is is that most Arabs are indeed Muslim, but most Muslim are not Arabs. They're Asian. Yes. And so if most Muslims are Asian... Um, that presents a problem when it comes to reading the Quran, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, talk to a Muslim by referring to Allah placing his son on an altar and then providing a, an animal, a sheep, to be the ransom for Abraham's son's soul. And link that with Jesus. And if a Muslim, if he's the, like the majority that do not know that the Quran or that Islamic teaching denies the crucifixion, you can lead him to the Lord. Now, even if years later he finds out that he shouldn't have believed what you said, by then he's tasted of the grace of God. He knows he, he God and he's experienced in the grace of God, and it won't matter to him that he was led to faith in Jesus by something that shouldn't have worked. Mm. But and, and was there any other uh, kind of revelations that came to you when you're reading through the Quran that you documented in this book that you think the audience would, would like yes. to know about? There are the six peace verses that Muhammad gave when he was still in Mecca, when he was still naively anticipating a welcome from Jews and Christians. But once he got to Medina and experienced resistance from the Jews, he said, well, Christians will probably be just as resistant as the Jews are. So he gave up all hope of winning an intellectual affirmation from Jews and or Christians. And because the Jews in Medina were opposing him, resisting him, even standing listening while he was preaching, and if he'd made a mistake with an Old Testament story, they'd laugh, interrupt him, and correct him embarrassingly. So he became angry. He said, no more Mr. Nice Guy. No more peace verses. So... There are one hundred and so there's a shift that takes place right. because that, so this is kind of the beginning of what many would see as a contradiction, maybe where you start yes. seeing uh, the peace verses and then the non peace verses. Six peace verses and one hundred and nine jihad verses. Okay, his own followers, once he got to Medina, heard him speaking angrily against Jews and Christians, and they said, "Don't you remember when we were back in Mecca? You said." If we have trouble understanding the verses in the Quran, we should consult with Jews and Christians because they're people of the book and they could help us understand the Quran. Now you're saying we should cut off their heads and amputate their fingers and ambush them and, and, and kill them? There's a contradiction here. And his response 
to the charge of contradicting himself was to speak as if he was an oracle of God, saying, and here I quote, as if Allah said through his lips, may I not give you a good verse one day and a better verse another day? And that verse in the Quran is the basis of a Muslim doctrine called abrogation, meaning something better can overrule something that was good previously but is no longer in effect. It's like when a woman gets married and she accepts her husband's surname in place of her surname as a single woman, the married surname abrogates her surname as a single woman. So there are, the six peace verses are still in the Quran, and Muslims exploit them to assure non-Muslims that Islam is a peaceful religion. Look at what Muhammad said. This is a peaceful verse. But in their hearts, they know the 109 jihad verses overrule and out, and leave the peace verses as passe. Because the abrogation takes place after the fact, right? Because before, he, when he was trying to appease, when he was trying to connect, when he was trying to uh, win over, no. he was using a very peaceful approach. But he gave up hope of winning them over, war verses became the norm. Now, using a peace verse to reassure Westerners, for example, that Islam is a peaceful religion is a deliberate deception because they know is no Muslim is bound by the peace verses. Mm. So, one peace verse is in the Quran is, if someone slays one man, it's as if he slew all of mankind. If, he, if you spare one human life, it's as if you've spared all of mankind. That's overruled by peace, by war verses that call for killing, ambush, war. And, and he was also a minority in the beginning. Uh, he didn't have a large following in the beginning. And it was later after robbing the caravans and being able to take on the booty, raise up his own army, mm -hmm. going into Mecca by force, yes. that we also see a lot more of the jihad verses. So the question becomes, which really illustrates peacefulness? When you have the power to be peaceful or when you are actually the minority and it, it is more beneficial to be peaceful? Yes. So the Islamic armies, once they got mobilized, when they would conquer a new community or village, they would kill Jews and Christians. But then Muhammad began to think, you know, Jews and Christians are productive people. They work, they earn money, but if you kill them, they can't earn any more money. So why don't we arrange to let them live as long as they agree to be dominated by Islamic rule so we can tax them? So taxation began to replace killing. But it meant that the Jew or Christian had to totally proclaim himself in submission. And Jews and Christians, or anyone else who totally submitted to Islam, was called a dhimmi, D-H-I-M-M-I. -M -M -I. And that's the status dimitude, which means that uh, no Christian or Jew can never bring a charge against a Muslim in a, in a court of Sharia law. And uh, we have to be ready to pay a tax, and the tax can vary. And if you can't pay a tax with money or gold or silver, a Muslim is entitled to take one or two of your children as tax payment, and you have no, no right to object. Mm. And Jews and Christians were n not allowed to ride a horseback with a saddle. Only Muslims could put a saddle on a horse and ride. And if a 
Muslim comes through a Jewish village or a Christian village, he can demand three days and three nights of free food and lodging, and then he can go on the way, and, you have, and the Jews and Christians have to provide it. So this is just a small part of dimitude. And so this began to replace the automatic slaying of someone for not being. And Islam, Muhammad taught, there are only two houses in the human race. The house of Islam, Islam meaning the house of submission to Allah. The other house is the Dar al-Harb, the house of war. So by that definition, if you're not a Muslim, you're a standing enemy who must be ordered to submit to be a dhimmi, submit to the taxation, and even lose a child here and there. Or in any Christian girls or Jewish girls who were taken would end up as sex slaves in a harem. Which, I mean, what you're saying today is, is it's not just something that was long, long ago in the in the 6th, 7th century with Muhammad, but actually this is being practiced today with ISIS, exactly what you're saying. And even though ISIS has been um, uh, tagged or labeled as extremist, as perverting a peaceful religion, what you're saying is – Basically, they're walking in the footsteps of Muhammad. They are the truest followers of Muhammad. Muhammad was a terrorist. He was a rapist. I mean, just in Medina alone, there were three Jewish clans, and they all resisted Muhammad's teaching. They all did not accept him as a prophet. And so he launched a war against one of the clans and told the others, I have no trouble with you. You're okay. I'm only angry with these people. And they were not prepared for this, so they didn't have extra food, water stored up in their fortress. Finally, they had to surrender, lay down their weapons, and he wanted to have them all killed. But the pagan Arabs in Medina said, no, we won't let you do that. We like them. They've lived among us. We won't let you kill them. So he said, at least they have to be evicted from the city. So he drove them. He wanted to kill them, but instead drove them out of the city, confiscated all their Houses, lands, date palm orchards, everything that they couldn't carry with them was his. Then he attacked the second clan and the third clan. If only all three clans had united against him initially, but one by one they fell. And so when they were killing the Jews in the second and third clan, he said, kill all the men and take the Jewish women as sex slaves or as wives, whatever. So they said, well but spare the children. So they said, how do we know when a boy is old enough to be killed as a man or young enough to be spared as a child? They said, see if they have any pubic hair, and if there's no pubic hair, spare them. If there's pubic hair, kill them. Then there was a beautiful Jewish woman named Raihana. He had had her family killed, her husband killed, and he wanted her, so he raped her on the spot. Mm. And... Can you imagine? And forced her to be his wife. Can you imagine? Very much like what we're seeing today with ISIS. ISIS. ISIS, they're the truest Muslims. The world needs to wake up and realize they're not an aberration. They are the norm that Muhammad established 1,700 years ago. Well, uh, al-Baghdadi, they actually refer to as doctor. And so 
with um, with al Baghdadi. The reason they call him doctor is because he has a doctorate of studying Islam at the university in Baghdad, which is where he gets his name from. So he is not just some crazy guy that you know popped up one day with ideas of following Islam. He's actually a very well educated uh, Muslim following in the steps of uh, Muhammad, just as Muhammad taught. Right. So uh, I mean, what you're saying about Muhammad from uh, the, the history books is very much in line with what we're seeing today. It is, in, indeed. So Muslim, radical Muslims are saying Western open-mindedness, Western freedom of expression is the train we ride to accomplish our worldwide goals. So almost like uh, the dividing up of the three Jewish tribes, taking yes. them one, on, one by one. One by one. So we've got to realize this. And at the back of my book, Secrets of the Quran, I give a list of 109 war verses. Now let me mention this. Muslims say it isn't jihad in the sense of killing people, military conquest. It's jihad in the sense of social striving, intellectual betterment. That's what jihad means. And so as I was going through the Quran looking for all the war verses, the list of 109 in the back of my book are those that are cannot be in any way construed as only for social betterment, uh, cultural improvement. The 109 are 109 verses that clearly do call for violence. Physical violence Physical and not violence. on yourself because uh, sometimes they often say that you know it's a jihad within myself to submit to Allah, but this is a jihad inflicted on others. There are other verses, a few other verses that say that. I've left them out of the list. It's explicitly war verses, 109 of them. Mm -hmm. Now, there are Muslims who are taught to read the Quran and memorize the Quran in Arabic even if they don't speak Arabic. But they're in a school in which the the teacher, the mullah teaching in the school, he does understand Arabic. So these boys are memorizing verses in a language they don't know. And you think, what a waste of time for the teacher and the student. But the Muslim teachers exploit it this way. They get to choose which of all those verses they interpret into the language those children do understand. Hmm. And if they focus on interpreting for them the war verses, the jihad verses, what impression does that give of these students about what the other verses that they don't understand must be all about? It gives them the impression that the whole Quran is calling for Muslims to be prepared for violence against non-Muslims. And so uh, here is something else about uh, in the Quran there are five verses and I give the references for them in my book in which Muhammad promised that anyone who dies as a faithful Muslim is welcomed into heaven will have beautiful virgins to have sex with and apparently when Muhammad first began making this promise to uh, newly converted Muslim men some of them began to say, well, if a lot of other Muslims get to heaven first, those beautiful virgins won't be virgins anymore. Other men will have had sex with them. And Muhammad said, no, Allah keeps them ever virginal. And so this is how Muhammad exploited 
the male sex drive as a means to draw men into Islam. First of all, you can maraud caravans and and keep some of the plunder for yourself. And if there's lovely women, you can take them as sex slaves or you can force them to be your wife. And not only that, but if you get killed in the attempt to plunder and to take uh, slaves, you get killed, don't worry about that. There's going to be beautiful huris, beautiful virgins in heaven. So... He redefined the Jewish Christian heaven as an enormous celestial brothel with Allah as the owner and the doorkeeper. The pimp. And and the yeah, the, the celestial pimp. And if he lets you in and the door price ticket in is especially to be martyred. You're guaranteed access. I, I could actually – I could sit here all day and listen to um, some of the things that you've written about in The Secrets of the Quran. If somebody wanted to get this book, what's the best way to get the book? Well, uh, order it on my website. Well, you can get it on Google or Kindle. It's, it's an ebook. And what is your website? DonRichardsonBookSales.com. Don Richards and Book Sales, all one word, lowercase, dot com. And they can find the book as well as your other books at that website? Yes, and paintings I've done about the tribal people that I wrote about in Peace Child and Lords of the Earth can be ordered as well. Some people are ordering my paintings as collectibles because they hope their value is going to rise in days to come. I don't know if they will. And, and I know that you're, um, um, you have a speaking tour. Is that speaking tour also found on the same website? It's not listed there, but you can uh, ask questions. There's a place where you can click on Contact Us and ask a question about where I'm speaking, and then we could send you an answer privately. Excellent. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for the opportunity to share these things with you and with your listeners, Eugene. And thank you guys for coming and listening to us at another Back to Jerusalem podcast. Again, this is Eugene Bach coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of America. God bless you. <laughs>